Hello, and welcome to the Federal Publication Seminars podcast series. This is podcast number 13. It's an update to the new DOD 3610 guidance. My name is Todd Hatherly, and I'm the Director of Programming for Federal Publication Seminars. And we're a leader in federal government contract training and professional development for over 60 years. Every year, Federal Publication Seminars trains thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on legal, regulatory, compliance, and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classroom, online, and in-house sessions. These podcasts are just a small sampling of important content you as a contracting professional can expect from attending an FPS program. Whether in person or online, live or on demand, you cannot find another source with breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. So please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Joining me today is David Robbins. He's a partner and co-chair of the government contracts practice at the law firm Jenner Block. Welcome, David. How are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. And, and joining David is Cindy Robertson, also a partner at Jenner and Block. How are you today, Cindy? I'm doing just great. Thanks so much, Todd. David, we talked recently, and I know you've, your organization sent out a recent alert on the 3610 guidance from the DOD. Can you uh, explain, give us a little bit of background on all that? Yeah, we'd love to. Thank you very much for having us. It's always fantastic to team up with you and your team. I'm glad to hear you guys are well and safe. We hope everybody listening remains that way in this fairly challenging COVID era. My colleagues, so Cindy Robertson, who's here on the podcast with me, and our partner Matt Hawes, my colleague Eric Herendeen and I, we saw this long-awaited DOD-issued 3610 guidance come out, and we just went to work digesting the material immediately. To recap, like we all know this, but let's recap anyway. Section 3610 of the CARES Act authorizes the government to use available funds to reimburse contractors for paid leave or idle time costs designed to keep contractors or subcontractors in a ready state. And that just means ready to flip the switch and get back to work after the COVID time is over. And so we know this issue is front and center, not just for DOD contractors, but across the board, because this guidance out of a DPC, uh, this office in DOD that issues the guidance can sometimes set the rules and norms for agencies across the government. I totally agree, David, and that's why following this guidance is so important, and we have a few high-level thoughts and takeaways before we get into the guidance itself. So first of all, much of the guidance is as expected given DOD's messaging to industry in recent months. And just to give you a bit of background on this guidance, DOD released draft guidance back in May. And that guidance was kind of a one-size-fits-all approach that requested quite a lot of detailed information that, quite frankly, seemed like overkill for low-dollar single-contract requests. And during a very abbreviated comment period, industry responded and said, hey, wouldn't it be better if we developed a different type of approach depending on the types of reimbursement requests that were being made? And so DOD agreed to go back to the drawing board and earlier this week released guidance that provides for three separate pathways. Let's talk about what those are. Contractors may re request reimbursement one of three ways. The first way is if they have a single contract for reimbursement or requests for reimbursement under a single contract that are valued under $2 million. 
The second pathway is for reimbursements under multiple contracts, but those must be sort of logically grouped under a single program or contracting activity. And then finally, the third pathway is an enterprise-wide type of request. And it should be noted that DOD maintains the unilateral right in any case to effectively group requests however they want. And there's been a big push for global settlements and payments for just the administrative convenience, I think, on the government side that may not be always easy for contractors. Finally, biggest consideration here and the biggest concern I think felt by contractors is funding. I've heard a lot of concern about the lack of available funding in recent months, and that continues to remain a concern. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Cindy. And I know we've teased that we're going to dive into the guidance in a moment, but this is worth just another few seconds to discuss sort of as preamble. This funding limitation is just no question. It's going to force contracting officers into some pretty hard decisions. It just may not be possible, in fact, it will not be possible to fully fund program objectives while supporting contractors with ready state payments. And so contracting officer discretion is going to come into play. And this is an area where the government can be somewhat formulaic and risk adverse in the acquisition enterprise. But these are novel questions that are going to be difficult and time consuming just for everybody. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, so let's delve into the guidance so we can see how this plays out. So DOD issued four guidance documents, two class deviations, an updated cost principle, an updated Q&A document, and a template for a memorandum for the record that contracting officers can use when addressing requests under 3610. So our team has digested them all. It's quite a few pages of information. And we see the following as sort of key points. First, while it's clear that the government listened to industry and tried to make this guidance more industry friendly, there's still some tension points. And a big one is the requirement that prime contractors include subcontractor costs in their reimbursement requests. So when OSD is discussing globally settling with contractors, it's kind of hard to envision how that's going to work, especially when contractors are both primes and subs and cannot submit subcontract costs on an enterprise-wide basis. The other key issue is that profit and fee may not be included in the reimbursement request. Additionally, affected contractor status and eligibility for reimbursement will be determined after submission of reimbursement requests. This was a, a real sticking point for contractors, and many of them were pushing through comments for the affected contractor status to be sort of a preliminary evaluation prior to having to go through all of the detailed information that's required under the, under the checklist. But regardless, if the government determines a contractor is affected and that there is sufficient funding and therefore the contractor is eligible for relief, that's when a contract modification will issue. The modification will discuss the time period of coverage and whether subcontractors are also covered. So a lot of work will need to go into the submission with no guarantee of being considered eligible. And further, no real guarantee that funds will be available to pay the costs. So as with so many things in government contracting, contractors will proceed on faith that at least 
some reimbursement will issue. And we don't think that faith will necessarily be misplaced, right? So given all the time and effort going into this process, obviously some level of reimbursement will issue. Uh, and Cindy mentioned before that profit and fee may not be included in the reimbursement request. And it's probably worth mentioning that for those who have been following government-wide guidance, that hasn't been the case uniformly. There have been some intelligence community uh, components and others who have at least given nods to allowing those. But now that the full scope of the amount of reimbursement that's going to be required here has come into play, I guess this is why DOD made absolutely clear no profit and no fee will be permitted under DOD 3610 guidance. But we, we understand just inherently, we just understand in industry's frustration with the process and just how difficult it's going to be to obtain these funds so many months after Congress enacted the CARES Act stimulus. It was just designed to keep the economy flowing and get the money out quickly. Well, I'm not sure it quickly really counts anymore given that we're recording this in August and at least the country shut down basically in March, but we'll do what we can. Let's just pivot from that point to look at some of the key compliance terms in DOD's new guidance, because look, we all know what this is going to mean. We know audits and investigations are gonna follow. We know that contractors are gonna be dinged for not checking all the boxes. So we're gonna try and highlight the key salient compliance issues that at least we've spotted in going through this. Contractors need to notify contracting officers in writing within 30 days of receiving any COVID-19 related loan forgiveness or additional stimulus, such as from the Paycheck Protection Program. If funds are forgiven, you need to notify the CO, and this is going to result in a decrement to 3610 requests. The guidance has been clear, the statute is clear all the way through, double dipping will not be permitted, and this encourages a certain process flow to alerting the government and making sure contractors can't double dip here. The government also has the right to audit the request, both for completeness and for compliance. And contractors must make a seven-part representation. Seven parts that, among other things, they have verified the accuracy of the information, they're submitting it in good faith, they've included their subcontractors' costs, and they're not double dipping from other stimulus funds or benefits. What I find interesting, having spent a bunch of my career in the procurement fraud arena, both in the government running the Air Force's procurement fraud operation and now back in private practice, is the memorandum for the record for contracting officers that DOD just released. That memo to use in assessing 3610 requests has the CO expressly stating that they are relying at least in part on the representations from the contractor to substantiate and or validate the request. Again, it bears repeating, we expect plenty of audits and investigations to follow these requests. These certifications, both from the contractor side, that seven-parter, and on the CO side saying what they're relying on, these are very clearly written with an eye to assisting investigations and enforcement action. And we can expect these representations to feature prominently in future enforcement cases to demonstrate the materiality of this information to the government. Read False Claims Act and other civil and or criminal fraud cases. Obviously, we hope nobody listening here will run afoul of that or face any of it, but you gotta understand what you're signing up to. All right, Cindy, back That's over to you. We should probably also cover the eligibility window uh, for reimbursement costs. So the start date, interestingly, has changed under recent DOD guidance. 
So it had been January 31st, 2020, and is now March 27th, 2020. The reason for that is that the statute itself was passed March 27th, and the guidance makes clear that it would be improper to retroactively apply the statute beyond March 27th. So that's in contrast, you should know, to the initial guidance that came out from DOD. They were originally permitting contractors to seek reimbursement requests all the way back to January 31st. But contractors should know that just because the CARES Act coverage extends only from March 27th, now through September 30th, that you can seek COVID-related costs under contractual avenues, so REAs or through your cost-type contracts, that is still permitted before March 27th, if those costs were incurred then. So, Cindy, um, just just a quick question about that. So, obviously, I agree wholeheartedly. That's always available, but that's not exclusive, right? It's not like that date cuts off the ability to use REAs or whatnot, and then you're solely in 3610 arena between the CARES Act statute and the end of the fiscal year, right? We still have those contractual remedies and contractors are gonna need to balance what they seek and where, and what's the right way to push this forward, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So the CARES Act should always remember that that is just for paid leave costs and there may be additional types of costs that contractors want to seek that are COVID related. And those contractual remedies flow through the contract and they've been in existence this whole time. So the CARES Act really just focuses on this narrow band of funding that relates to the paid leave that we discussed earlier in the podcast. I should talk about too, under the section 3610, I think what is required um, to show that you are an affected contractor, because I think it helps identify what these types of requests are really focused on. So first of all, to be an affected contractor, you must have provided paid leave due to COVID-19 from between March 27th and September 30th, 2020. Now note that these costs must have been incurred and paid. So secondly, reimbursement must not include paid leave to which an employee was otherwise entitled. So for example, that leave could be otherwise earned or that would have been provided anyway through a company policy or a labor agreement, for example. Additionally, the contractor or subcontractor employees must not have been able to telework because the job could not be performed remotely. So that's a critical factor that contractors should not forget. And then finally, the request cannot result in a total of paid work and paid leave charges for any contractor or subcontractor employee that exceed an average of 40 hours per week. So those are the types of costs that we're talking about when we're referring to Section 3610. As you know, funding has been key issue in all of this. So interestingly, the expected continuing resolution needed to keep the government running at the end of the current fiscal year may actually extend at least the end date for CARES Act eligibility, but it may also include some additional appropriations for the CARES Act. We'll have to wait and see on that, and who knows (laughs) what will happen, but we can at least keep our fingers crossed. I'd say otherwise, it seems like Congress has not been able to develop another package um, that seems like it's 
on the verge of being passed. They've just kind of lost momentum on this issue. But there have been a lot of folks who are very interested in seeing Congress appropriate more funding uh, towards CARES Act coverage. So and I while think that will um, certainly help. Oh, I'm sorry, Cindy, go ahead. No, no. So I was going to just say that we all have our fingers crossed on this, and it remains to be seen how how it'll go. But for for now, contracting officers, as we spoke about earlier, have a great deal of discretion and many hard decisions that they're facing. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think contractors facing the need for 3610 funds or other COVID-related relief, whether it's schedule or financial, need to keep in mind that this is just one tool and 3610 reimbursement and claims and requests for equitable adjustment and excusable delay, they all go hand in hand and they should be seen as an integrated whole or sort of a system where one leans on the other and the other. And you're well advised, at least I think, well advised to consider them all to maximize your relief from what is truly a remarkable and novel and somewhat scary, though it's become quite normal now that we're into August and recording this since we've been living with COVID-19 for this long uh, event that's probably going to be unique in the lives of most government contractors today. So we were grateful for the opportunity, Todd, to come here and talk about DOD's 3610 guidance for reimbursement of those costs. Again, it's always a pleasure to partner with you on these things, and we're grateful for the opportunity. Well, thank you, David, and thank you, Cindy, for joining me today, and I appreciate your insights and thoughts. So if a listener wants to reach out to either one of you, how would they do so? Sure, Cindy, you want to go first? Sure. I am available at my email, which is crobertson at jenner.com. You can also just Google me, Cynthia or Cindy Robertson at Jenner and Block, and you'll find my contact information listed on the website. My phone number is 202-639-6021. And I look forward to hearing from anyone who has questions on these very complex issues. And this is David. I can be reached at 202-639-6040 or David Robinson, first initial D, last name Robins, D-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at Jenner, J-E-N-N-E-R dot com. As always, if you have any topics you want to do, us to cover in a podcast, uh, please send me a note at Todd at FedPubSeminars.com. And until next time, stay safe, keep your distance, and read the farm.